This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the second episode of season 10. Before we get into it, let's break the ice as always. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know? Members of the British royal family are not allowed to play Monopoly. Apparently, Queen Elizabeth II made the ruling because the games turned too vicious, something I'm sure everyone listening can relate to. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Grief is the price we pay for love. Queen Elizabeth II. Now this case was suggested by Claire via Messenger. We're in the coastal town of Deal in Kent this week. Here are five quickfire facts about Deal. Number one, the town's motto is Adjuvate Advenas, which means befriend the stranger. My Latin admittedly isn't what it used to be, so perhaps I'm saying that wrong. Fact number two, Deal Castle is a 16th century artillery fort built by the order of King Henry VIII. It's one of the finest Tudor artillery castles in England. Number three, Deal Coast used to be a haven for sailing ships in the mid-17th and early 18th centuries, so much so that the town became infamous for smuggling. Number four, Roman forces under the command of Julius Caesar visited Walmer, a neighbouring town of Deal, another location key to this week's story, twice in 55 and 54 BC. I say visited, Caesar was invading our shores and succeeded on the second attempt. There's actually a stone plaque showing the head of Julius Caesar in the town, which marks the probable landing place for both of those invasions. And finally, number five, on July 12, 1771, Captain James Cook went ashore in Deal following his first voyage, an expedition to the South Pacific Ocean aboard HMS Endeavour. Deal was the first piece of UK land he stepped foot on after three years of circumnavigation. According to the 2021 census, the estimated population of Deal is 30,917. Our story this week is one that has been over two decades in the making. For 23 years, the disappearance of Debbie Griggs has been a mystery to those aware of the story, but the locals in Deal felt like they knew the secret truth. The seaside town appears to be one of those quaint little places where most of the residents know each other and gossip can, at times, be rife. There have been many a whisper about what happened to Debbie Griggs, with most not believing that she simply up and left her young sons whilst pregnant with her fourth child. That didn't fit Debbie's profile. It did not make sense, especially to her close friends and family. I can see a few other podcasts have covered this case before, but when they did, Debbie was still technically classed as a missing person. Despite a murder trial occurring in 2019, there were still some in the community who believed she was alive. Last October, that all changed. The answers people were looking for were revealed in the most heartbreaking way possible. 
This is without question one of the most bizarre cases I've researched to date and I'd like to dedicate the episode to the memory of Debbie and her unborn son whose lives were tragically taken away from them by the person they trusted the most. But as always I'm getting way ahead of myself so let's Craig David back to the mid-1960s. December 10th 1964 was when Brian and Patricia Cameron welcomed their first daughter to the world. Naming her Debbie Elizabeth, the couple were thrilled to welcome a new member of the family into the Cameron clan and its deep deal roots. I know that Debbie went on to have a little sister called Wendy and a brother called Derek, but my knowledge stops there. She had a big family regardless and they'd lived in the seaside town for many generations. One thing I noticed about Debbie when looking at old photos of her was her smile. She was rarely seen without one, which is something that stems back to her childhood. Always one for having a laugh and getting up to some minor hijinks, Debbie would do things such as join in with mud fights at school, something which occurred during one science class that I'm sure the teacher remembered for a good while. She was popular with her peers as a result of her playful personality and kind nature, the latter of which led her to train to become a nurse. The photo on this episode's cover art is of Debbie in her pupil nurse's uniform and you can tell how much she loved her work given the expression on her face. Debbie's first nursing role came at Kent and Canterbury Hospital before moving roles and focusing more on looking after the health and well-being of children with disabilities. She absolutely loved children and had that motherly instinct that many people long for but so many don't have. Add to that the fact she was not easily frustrated and had the patience of a saint and you've got the makings of one hell of a nurse. In 1990, Debbie and her partner Andrew tied the knot, meaning she would now be known by the surname Griggs as opposed to Cameron. Andrew Griggs was a keen amateur sailor who knew the shores of the southern part of the North Sea like the back of his hand. His family had fishing in their blood so it comes as no surprise that his knowledge of the deep blue far surpassed most of the locals living in Deal. Two years into their marriage, Debbie and Andrew welcomed their first child to the world, a boy whom they named Jeremy. Within five years, two more sons would come along, Jake and Luke, leaving the couple with three young boys to look after. Coming from a big family, Debbie didn't mind one bit. She no doubt had plenty of help as and when she needed it, given the locality of her family and friends, but more than anything, she loved those boys more than anything she'd loved in her life. Her maternal instinct shone through from the moment she found out she was pregnant with Jeremy, and she only shone brighter after each of her next two sons were born. Brian and Patricia would happily watch the boys and take them to a school and playgroup while their mum and dad went to work, but it wasn't all sunshines and rainbows though. After the birth of Jeremy and Jake, the two eldest boys, Debbie experienced symptoms associated with postnatal depression. A list of common symptoms according to the NHS's website are a persistent feeling of sadness and low mood, loss of interest in the wider world, lack of energy and feeling tired all the time, trouble sleeping at night and feeling sleepy during the day, finding it difficult to look after yourself and your baby, withdrawing from contact with other people, problems concentrating and making decisions and extreme thoughts about hurting your baby. I'm by no means suggesting Debbie experienced each of those symptoms as the details are not widely known but I deem it important to highlight what she may have been going through. It'll make sense why as the story progresses. To combat how she was feeling, Debbie's GP, Dr Peter Shooten, 
prescribed her some antidepressants, but by February 1995, she'd stopped taking them. Clearly, she was feeling more like her usual self and no longer felt the need to rely on the medicine. Crucially, when Luke was born in 1997, the youngest son, Debbie experienced no symptoms of postnatal depression, which will have been a welcome relief for her. Debbie was a much-loved member of her family. I want to stress that the odds of her ever walking out on her children is so unlikely that it borders on laughable. Still, a picture would later be painted of her by Andrew that was labelled by case prosecutors as nothing more than a shameful and desperate attempt at defamation. By January 1999, the then 34-year-old Debbie was pregnant once more. She would soon find out that it was to be another boy. Her marriage to Andrew was beyond being on the rocks as spring began turning to summer, with a divorce being almost inevitable. For some context, Debbie had caught wind of Andrew being unfaithful to her. To make matters worse, the person he'd been unfaithful with was a 15-year-old girl, who was actually 14 when they began their relationship, something which has been described as being sexual. According to the teenager, Debbie confronted her about her relationship with her husband. She would later testify in court that Andrew had taken advantage of her naivete, knowing full well she was emotionally vulnerable and groomed her into having a sexual relationship with him. The 15-year-old told Debbie as much at the time. Furious at what she'd discovered, Debbie kicked Andrew out in March, but a short while later they reconciled and he moved back in. To make matters even more complicated, the couple co-owned Griggs Freezer Centre in the town, a business that had been passed down by Andrew's dad after running it for three decades. If Debbie were to go ahead and proceed with a divorce like she'd threatened to, if the rumours about Andrew and the young girl were true, then he'd lose half of his business in the process. That, combined with the potential embarrassment at the local community being aware of his infidelity with a bloody child, is considered to be sufficient of a motive for what Andrew did to Debbie. Even with their relationship on thin ice, Debbie remained optimistic at the prospect of welcoming their fourth son to the world in September. The same optimism was not shared by Andrew, who allegedly told his wife that he'd like her to terminate the pregnancy. The reason was that he didn't believe the baby was his. That was what Debbie said to one of her close friends, Dorothea Smith, in one of their candid weekly catch-up phone calls. Andrew began laying the groundwork for what was to come a good few months before Debbie disappeared. He'd tell anyone that would listen, including medical professionals, that her postnatal depression had never gone away and that she was really struggling to cope. He attempted to gaslight her by saying she was mentally unwell, as confirmed by a diary entry written by Debbie. Debbie also wrote things such as, Andrew is a bombastic bully, he has a bad temper, and if things do not go his way, he gets very nasty. In an affidavit written by Debbie that year, she wrote, Everything we have together is in fact his, and I am only allowed to enjoy anything that is a joint matrimonial asset by reason of being with him. He does not let me go out by myself, his needs come first. He tells me I am sick and mad in the head. My legal knowledge is minimal, but affidavits are typically used in divorce proceedings, right? If so, that confirms that the ball was already rolling. Perhaps Andrew only stopped the proceedings when he realised he'd lose half of his business. Debbie also claimed in the document that, despite having never struck her, Andrew did once kneel on her stomach while she was pregnant, which makes me feel absolutely sick. 
During that turbulent month of March, Andrew was so busy preparing for a divorce before the couple reconciled that he even changed the couple's joint business account into a sole account in just his name. He would later claim under oath that he did that due to Debbie taking away the company's checkbooks. But that turned out to be a lie because she took them after he swapped the account over, not before. By April, Andrew's loathing of Debbie became so intensified that he felt the need to trauma dump on local welder Peter Monks. Andrew complained about how difficult his marriage to Debbie was, especially when it came to money and the business, and according to Peter, the disgruntled husband explicitly said that he wished his wife was dead. Let's add that to the ever-growing list of Andrew Griggs's red flags. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Our main timeline begins on May 5th, 1999, when Andrew claimed that Debbie stormed out of the family home on Cross Road in Walmer after her husband came home and fell asleep. Supposedly frustrated that she had to watch the kids all day every day whilst Andrew simply came home from work and fell asleep, Debbie is said to have awoken him with some choice expletives before storming out of the house. She'd done this previously between 30 and 40 times, so say Andrew, which again was nothing more than an attempt at making himself the victim and tarnishing Debbie's reputation. She disappeared, I'm using air quotes there, between 10 and 10.30pm that night, but Andrew didn't bother phoning the police until almost 24 hours had passed. He had better things to do such as turning off a computer at the freezer business's office and visiting the local sailing club to check the fuel levels of the rescue boats. One thing Andrew didn't count on was a couple of their eagle-eyed neighbours spotting Debbie's car, a white Peugeot 309, being driven from the family's home in the early hours of May 6th. The sightings occurred between 2 and 4am. Before phoning the police, Andrew made some other calls. Dorothea Smith recalled being disturbed after speaking with Andrew that day owing to his complete lack of worry and sense of calm after advising that Debbie had left and not returned. You'd have thought he'd simply misplaced his car keys with how he was going on. Geraldine Bristow, a neighbour, recalled Andrew telling her that Debbie had simply gone away for a few days to punish him and see how he coped looking after the boys on his own. He reiterated how depressed Debbie was and revealed that she had stopped taking her medication. More victim blaming there. The daft thing about that lie is that a GP would later reveal that she had displayed no signs of depression in the weeks and months prior to her disappearance. Remember, he'd stopped prescribing her antidepressants four years earlier in February 1995. Around 10 minutes to 10pm on May 6th was when Andrew finally called the police to report his wife as missing. He explained to the operator that Debbie was depressed and had stormed out several times previously, which will have sort of dampened the apparent seriousness of the situation immediately. Asked where he thought she had gone and by using what mode of transport, Andrew replied that she had taken the Peugeot, but when questioned further, he failed to recall the vehicle's number plate. He did, however, mention that 250 quid had also gone from the house, with the implication being that Debbie had taken it with a view to spending it. That sly tactic will have, again, lessened the seriousness in the officer's eyes and led to them believing she was still alive. Therefore, this was, for the longest time, treated as a missing person inquiry and not a murder inquiry. When officers arrived at Cross Road later that evening, they questioned Andrew further in a frustrating exchange. 
He had no recent photograph of his wife to help aid their search and once more explained how she had stormed out due to him simply being asleep in the living room. His demeanour was beyond calm, which is far from what you'd expect for someone whose wife had been missing for over 24 hours at that point. To Debbie's friends and family, her running away lacked sense. Not just because of her love for her children, but because she'd made several plans for May 6th and the days following. It was her mum's birthday for one, which is something she'd never miss. She also had an antenatal appointment, she wouldn't miss that, and a body shop party with her mates. Almost a week after she was officially reported as missing, Debbie's white Persia was found in Walmer, 1.3 miles away from her home. It had seemingly been abandoned and, upon further inspection, a blood smear was found in its boot. The blood belonged to Debbie Griggs. Interestingly, the lining had been removed from the boot, indicating there was far more blood in there at one point, but it doesn't appear to have been concrete enough evidence to pursue anything other than the missing person inquiry. There were also no fingerprints recovered from the car, so it had obviously been wiped down. Had Andrew transported Debbie's body somewhere? If so, had he already killed her, or was she still alive? Those are some of the questions we'll never know the answers to, and perhaps it's for the best that we won't. Another piece of evidence that leaned towards the fact that Debbie had not ran off was that her best friend, Helen Cheeseman, was told that May that her son, Barry, had bone cancer for the second time. There's no way on earth Debbie would have just up and left and never contacted Helen, having known that information. Barry sadly passed away in 2003, aged 14, after losing his battle with cancer. Do you want another piece of circumstantial evidence? How about this? Andrew answered a call from a dental practice on May 17th and was asked to put Debbie on the phone. After being told she was not there, Mr Atkinson, the manager of the practice, asked Andrew for her date of birth. He replied, Her date of birth was 10th of December 1964. Was. Not is. Was. The manager reportedly felt incredibly cold after hearing those chilling words being spoken in the past tense. Police officers searched Debbie's house and the field surrounding it, but they came up short. They even contacted Debbie's bank, but her credit and debit cards had not been used since she went missing. Her cards would never be used again. Andrew was arrested on May 25th, but was subsequently let go due to a lack of evidence. His testimony continued to be that Debbie was on many of her runaway missions and appeared to have walked out on her family. In an attempt to further slander his wife, he said, Her whole personality changed. She had no patience. She was very angry at times with the children. It was very stressful for both of us. She was angry with me. She had repeatedly threatened to walk out and, on more than one occasion, had told the children she might as well go and kill herself. Playing the victim once more, Andrew said Debbie was very aggressive with the boys if they were naughty and could be heavy-handed, whereas he was just a big softy with them. At the turn of the millennium, Debbie was still classified as missing and Andrew was in the midst of a four-year period in which he was being treated as the key person of interest in the case. In the summer of 2001, he moved to the village of St Leonard's in the county of Dorset, roughly 165 miles west and slightly south of Deal. The property was owned by Andrew's parents after their purchase was completed on July 27th that year. The three boys went with him, obviously, and their grandma was heavily involved in their upbringing. Within a year, Andrew had met someone else, who confusingly was also called Debbie. 
Even after hearing about the rumours surrounding Andrew's arrest in connection with Debbie's suspected murder and the fact he'd been sexually intimate with a minor, Debbie pursued the relationship and they only grew closer. They would eventually marry in 2010, at which point Andrew's mum and dad moved out into a bungalow they'd purchased to give the family more space. A few major things happened before they married though. In 2003, Andrew was officially dismissed as a person of interest because there was simply not enough evidence to link him to Debbie's disappearance or suspected murder. With no realistic prospect of conviction, the case against him was dropped. In the build-up to his second marriage, Andrew had to sort out the problem of still being married to Debbie. According to the UK government's website, you can make a claim for what's called a declaration of presumed death from the High Court if someone you know has been missing for more than seven years. If you have good reason to believe that someone you know has died less than seven years ago, but from something such as a mass disaster, you can also make a claim. That information only relates to England and Wales. I'm not entirely sure at what point he did this, but Andrew decided to finalise Debbie's disappearance by completing the relevant paperwork, thus allowing him to legally move on with his life. He first obtained a dissolution of their marriage, aka he was granted a divorce, and was then issued a certificate of presumed death in the absence of Debbie's body being found. A long period of nothingness regarding Debbie's disappearance followed until one former beat officer decided that that needed to change. Detective Superintendent Paul Fotheringham worked the beat when Debbie disappeared in 1999, but by 2018 he led the major crime unit in Kent and was in charge of the cold case team. In Paul's head, Andrew had always been the man responsible for Debbie's disappearance. The case had stuck with him for nearly 20 years and he wanted to give it one more crack. He went out and hired a retired detective to review the case file, saying, Just go over it again, in today's context. A year later, the CPS agreed that while there was no new evidence, the amount of time that had passed with no contact from Debbie all but ruled out the possibility of her still being alive. As I said earlier, her credit and debit cards had not been used since she disappeared. There had also been no evidence of her existence on any government system since that time. She hadn't seen a GP, visited a dentist, received benefits, got a speeding ticket, nothing. The likelihood of Debbie having taken her own life was also lessened by the fact there was no trace of her, despite exhaustive international searches and DNA testing of unidentified female corpses in morgues throughout the country. A murder charge was swiftly authorised and Andrew was formally arrested on the morning of March 12, 2019. Just two months prior, Debbie's mum Pat had passed away after relentlessly seeking the truth for the last two decades. Sadly, she never got the answers she deserved despite being so close to finding them. Even with no body being found, Andrew was found guilty of Debbie's murder at his trial in October 2019. His Honour Justice Robin Spencer oversaw the proceedings at Canterbury Crown Court and speculated that Andrew had used his extensive nautical knowledge to dispose of Debbie's body at sea. In his closing statement, the judge said, You somehow disposed of her body in the early hours of the morning. I strongly suspect that you dumped her body at sea. As an experienced sailor and former deep-sea fisherman, you knew that stretch of coast like the back of your hand. It would not have been difficult to wear her body down so that it sunk without a trace. Andrew was handed a life sentence with a minimum term of 20 years despite his defence team attempting to achieve a 15-year minimum. 
His barrister, Nicholas Lobenberg, KC, argued that his client's age, previous good character and health problems were mitigating factors. Nicholas was referring to a degenerative spine disease Andrew has. Debbie's father, Brian Cameron, said in a victim impact statement, My wife and I could never understand how she could just disappear and there hasn't been a day go by when I haven't wondered what happened to her. We both thought she was dead. We organised a memorial for Debbie when she was deemed legally dead. The torment for Debbie's friends and family didn't stop with Andrew's conviction. He continued to plead his innocence and hadn't told anyone where Debbie's body was. A memorial gathering was organised by her sister Wendy and took place on November 3rd. A hundred or so people turned up with flowers to throw into the sea off Deal Pier in memory of their beloved Debbie. In a bizarre twist, Debbie's three sons launched a Find Our Mum Facebook page in either late 2019 or early 2020 in which they protested their dad's innocence and explained how they believe their mum was still alive. The About section of the page read, This page has been launched for the sole purpose of finding our mum, Debbie Elizabeth Griggs, Cameron, who we believe was not murdered by our father but is still alive. It has not been set up to cause upset or distress. Every human on this planet is permitted to have an opinion. That is their right. We respect that right. All we ask is that you, in return, respect ours. We are only interested in finding our mum. A post written on January 26, 2020 read, We have no reason to disbelieve Dad and don't know why you chose to leave us, but if you loved us as much as everyone says you did, you must have had good reason. One of us saw you watching us soon after we moved, so we know you care. Please just let us know that you're okay. That was clearly directed at Debbie. To clarify, that supposed incident of Debbie watching the boys from afar is widely disputed, as nobody had ever heard of it before that post. It wasn't mentioned once in the murder trial, and it's worth remembering how young the boys will have been, and how much they'll have been missing their mum. Perhaps they saw someone that wasn't there. Someone they wished was there. In July 2022, Andrew's appeal to overturn his conviction was rejected at a court of appeal hearing. Three months later, that decision would become more than justified. Dorset police received a tip-off from an anonymous source that they may want to look in the garden of the property in St. Leonard, Dorset. The source must have been credible because digging began on October 5th. Later that day, human remains were found in the garden. Using some of the teeth recovered from the scene, the remains were confirmed as belonging to Debbie Griggs. After 23 years, she, along with her 18-week-old unborn son, had finally been found. It's disturbing to think that Debbie's three sons grew up playing on the grass just above where their mum had been buried by the dad. What's even more disturbing is that Andrew must have kept Debbie's body stored somewhere for roughly two years before moving in with his parents and then taken her body with him to bury there. That is one of the most mind-boggling things I've ever attempted to decipher. Andrew's parents claim to have known nothing about Debbie being buried there, but it makes you wonder how true that is. Debbie Griggs was finally laid to rest on November 25th, 2022 in a private ceremony attended by close friends and family at Kent's Barham Crematorium. Her father had since passed away and, like her mum, never got the chance to find out what happened to her. They never got their closure. 
Earlier this year, in March, there was a hearing at Maidstone's County Hall in which the circumstances of Debbie's death were supposed to be revealed. Unfortunately, due to the severe level of decomposition, Sarah Clark, the North Kent area coroner, could only say, It is believed her death was at her home address. How exactly Debbie Griggs died may never be known. And that was the story of Debbie Griggs and British murderer Andrew Griggs. Thanks again, Claire, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. If you're listening on Spotify, a quick reminder, there's a section at the bottom of the episode where you can let me know what your thoughts are. I've got just three new reviews to read out this week. Andy Petros left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts titled Respectful. It reads, I really enjoyed this podcast. It's short, to the point, never boring, always gripping. Emily May left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Amazing. It reads, I'm loving this podcast, such a relaxing voice and some really interesting cases. I listen to loads of true crime podcasts and you still manage to find cases I haven't heard of. And finally, Amy left a five-star review on Podchaser. It reads, Stuart is brilliant, straight to the point, no rambling. I listen when I'm in the office and makes my day go so quickly. Thank you for being you. Thank you, Andy, Emily May and Amy for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. Please keep leaving those star ratings on Spotify. If you want to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, the links for each are on my website. Thank you, Jules B, for buying me a beer at buymeacoffee.com slash BritishMurders. The message left was... Love the podcast. I came across them by happy accident and now I'm hooked. Your accents are hysterical. I'd like to suggest Aaron Campbell as a subject as his case is particularly chilling as he was only 17 at the time. I was working as civilian staff of Police Scotland at the time and my training was postponed as every available officer was sent to Rothsey on Butte to investigate. Keep up the good work. I've added that case to my spreadsheet for you. Thank you, hello, and welcome to my latest Patreon members, Amy Midlane and She Brooks. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a cheeky shout-out for your efforts. And that does us for another episode. Thanks so much for listening. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.